0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In this episode of our series on 2 Kings, we turn to the Kingdom of Judah. I'm going to introduce the passage with a flashback to 1 Kings and Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the Temple. Also, you're going to notice an unusual time stamp as to when this talk was recorded. I'm leaving it in because I think it provides some useful context for my approach to this passage. Let's see how the story unfolds.
1: Well, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. Yeah, trust me on this, okay? 1 Kings chapter 8. I said that right. Of course, the news this past week has been dominated by the, the taking out in a swift and violent fashion of Osama bin Laden, the number one most wanted terrorist in the world since 2001. and all and there's been a lot of discussion about that but you know some people really excited some people racked with conflict over this and i've got to tell you i've been nonplussed by the whole event as far as in emotional impact is, it goes i i don't feel jubilation i don't feel regret i don't feel guilt for feeling or not feeling a particular way about it or for any kind of involvement that we have. And I was trying to figure out and I think one of the reasons is I've gotten a bad case of perspective from reading through the kings. You know, we see, we see in the Bible, we see, we see war criminals who are taken out like that. For example, Sisera in the book of Judges who is killed by Jael. And she's killed... Uh, he, he killed, she kills him. While he is first of all she give, he comes into her tent you know just, just look you know at, escaping from a battlefield, having escaped with his life from a battlefield, he wanders into the tent of some of someone who just happens to be the wife of of someone in a family that he has terrorized. And she comes in and she welcomes him in and, and gives him what appears to be hospitality and and he said, he says, I'm thirsty and can I have some water? And she brings him a bowl of milk. And you know what I mean just you know, goes overboard with hospitality and he drinks and uh, drinks that milk and he he's exhausted, he falls asleep, and then she goes and, and helps him sleep a little better with a tent peg through the temple, you know, and he's gone. He's, she's, she's taken him out. Wow. Wow. Now, under the law of commandments, that's murder. But under the laws of war, she's celebrated as a national hero in the song of Deborah the prophetess. Okay? So... You've got examples in the Bible like that. The Bible does not mourn for terrorists who are put out of our misery. But you go through Kings and you see the coming and going of all of the, and some of them are terrorists and some are crooks and some are murderers and some are idolaters and some are righteous people. And and you see this. And one of the things that you don't, that you see is that something like that. You, you, have, you have a criminal who is put to death. May be assassinated, maybe be executed, but a criminal is put to death and nothing changes. See, that's one of the things I've gotten from Kings. <laughs> so I've gotten a bad case of perspective. What's going to change with the death of Osama bin Laden? What in our world is going to change with the death of Osama bin Laden? Not really. Al-Qaeda doesn't die with him. Our troops are still in Afghanistan. Uh, Terrorists. Terrorists still think that is their calling to inflict terror upon people that don't be the way they wish them to be. So, this is not an essay on all of that. It's just kind of, you know, one of the things also that's taken place as I've been reading through the key, I've got entirely too emotionally wrapped up in, the, in what's going on. And I'm at the point in the book in Second Kings where we are that I'm just getting angry. I'm really starting to get angry. I'm really looking forward to next week because we, next week we're, gonna, we're going to be studying about somebody who really was worthy and worthwhile. And who really did make a difference for a little while. And then we're going to find the tragic story of how he didn't make a permanent difference because of what's going on, what we're studying this week. I want you to look at 1 Kings chapter 8. This was from the prayer of Solomon during the dedication of the temple. And he prays to God. And in, chap- in verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, the God of Israel... There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. You have regard to the prayer of your servant to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to my cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So notice that Solomon recognizes we've made a dwelling place for you but in the literal sense of the word that is absolutely silly it's ridiculous for even contemplate that you heaven can't contain you the universe cannot contain you (laughs) you're going to live here so Lord I'm not going to ask that you actually literally dwell here I'm going to ask that when we pray to this place, would you hear us? Would this? Would you let this be your communication station, so that when we pray toward this place, and when we lift up our prayers in this place, would you hear us? Now, understand the place of the temple, and in the worship of God in the old covenant. Under the old covenant, the place of the temple is absolutely crucial. Do you understand why? The temple is the representative of who we would know for us as Jesus Christ. Okay? The temple in this place, in this, this is Christ. And he says, verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. What is he doing here? He's referring to the covenant promises and curses. Back in Deuteronomy. The curses... And the promises of the covenant. The blessings and the curses. And the curses are inevitable with the disobedience. And Solomon doesn't say so much if. He says when. He knows his audience. (laughs) And he knows who he's standing and praying for. When your people are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name. There's where the if is. It's not if they are defeated, it's when. It's not when they turn, it's if. They turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers verse 41 or verse 44. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart to the land which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned, we have acted perversely, and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they've committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Verse 52, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Second Kings, chapter 15. Verse 32. Now last week we saw the death of the nation. Last year we focused on the last chaotic two decades of the northern kingdom of Israel. The majority of the those who had been called by the name of God. The great numbers of the tribes. The large tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and then the others, the others of the tribe, those that were in the and throughout the first inhabited areas of Canaan by the Israelites, and those who had filled out that of the the nation of Israel. We read their chaotic and inexorable decline and spiritual decline and final fall. And it was, it was like there's a remarkable thing, one of the themes that we see in, in Kings, we see at any point along the line they could have changed their destiny. And yet you look back and you stand back and you see the the totality of what's going on and you see it was inevitable. How do you reconcile those two things? I don't know. But that's, I mean, it's just the inevitability. And you see the writer of Kings is just looking at this and he's not even paying attention at the end to the... To the historical details that we would think interesting or fascinating he said I don't even want to talk about that that's not even the point the point is from this point on there's not a chance and the last king the one who really had, I mean the, the last king who really gets t- he's not really that bad in comparison to all the kings who went before him he's not that bad too little, too late. Now we turn our attention back to the southern kingdom of Judah. This is where I'm starting to get angry. Because you see everything and all that you could see about what brought about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it is all rooted in the spiritual decay that began when Jeroboam decided that he could set up his own way of worshiping God. That had nothing to do with what God had commanded. And that was in actual opposition to some of God's pretty significant commandments. You know, like those that say, you shall not make any graven image, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, You know those commandments? That's in our day and time. We've grown beyond that, said Jeroboam. And for purely political reasons, set up his own religion. His own way of worshipping the Lord. And said, this is the right way to worship God. The, the invention and innovation is what's taken place in the house of David. Let's get away from all of that. And let's go back to real worship, which is Idols. Let's worship gold. That's where it's always been at for us. That's what's always worked for us, says Jeroboam. And from that point on, there is an internal decay. There is an internal cancer that continues to grow and grow and grow. And Elijah the prophet comes and interrupts a detour. God is not going to lose His people in terms of their turning away to another God. He won't let that happen. He is a jealous God and He will not let that happen. And yet, even Elijah and uh, with the spiritual power that he had and Elisha who carried on that ministry of spiritual power and strength and being the defender, the horses and chariots of Israel could not interrupt the internal decay coming from a religious system that none of its kings even though even the ones who knew better and there were some who knew better refused to change and everybody knew it it was not a secret and God kept sending prophets to make it absolutely crystal clear what God wanted Because you know, everybody's saying, Well, I just don't understand what God wants from us. Bull. Poppycock. You know good and well what God wants from you, and you just don't want to do it. That's our problem. (sighs) Seeing all that's gone on, what direction does Judah take? If you don't get mad, you're not... Then... Maybe... Maybe you're more mature than I am or maybe you're just not paying attention. I don't know. One or the other. Let's see what's what's happening here. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. Now remember, Uzziah was a good king. He served the Lord. He honored God. Now... He had had a predecessor or two who were stinkers and had introduced some bad stuff. But Isaiah served the Lord. He was faithful to God most of his life. Got kind of... We're not told about it in Kings. We're told about it in Chronicles. He got kind of cocky. He decided that... uh, You know, there's no real reason why I can't offer a sacrifice as a priest does. You know, I'm the king after all. And, you know, what does he do? I'm bringing all the material. I'm providing all of this stuff. All the priest does is just light the fire. Why can't I light the fire? He went on into the the temple. When he came out, he was stricken with leprosy. And so, conducted the rest of his days. They they made a structure for him that they called. It is literally translated a "house of freedom." And there's been a lot of debate about what that means, and the scholars, you know, have their their things about what because it, it's just that's all that it said there. He he was in his, that, that he lived out the rest of his days in the house of freedom. I think that was a couple of things one of them I think that is a euphemism you know kind of like uh, well I won't say anyway it was a euphemism it was a gentle way of talking about a harsh truth that the person who lived inside there is a leper he, he's the king we honor him he's a good man. But he is leprous and he cannot join the rest of our society. And we, the rest of our society, cannot join him except through a screen. I think the house of freedom was something that was constructed for him so that he could still live within the walls of Jerusalem and not have to live outside the walls. So he could have free access within the it was just sort of a, a little, you know, it was it was a house of that his house of freedom was actually. Ironically, a house of confinement. In the last years of his reign, his son Jotham exercised co-regency. Now, for a good while, it may have been Isaiah who was actually calling the shots, and Jotham, because Jotham was a teenager when he began, you know, this this co-regency with his father. So, Jotham may have been the, you know, the royalty out front, you know, the the crown prince who who is you know, doing all of these. So we've got the king, the young king, and the, the the retired, the king emeritus, as it were. You know, we've got this going on. And then in his later days, and the advance of the disease, and Uzziah became more and more crippled and less and less capable. And so Jotham began taking over things. And so finally, in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. You remember, this is, these are also the days of when Isaiah is beginning his ministry. He is, a young, he is a young prince who God has called out as a prophet. And we read in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year the king Isaiah died,
0: I saw the Lord. I lifted up His train filled.
1: And he began to see how, how God comes and says, the, the creatures all around the throne are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah falls on his face saying, Oh, woe is me. Basically, I'm in trouble. Why? Isaiah was a good man. He was already preaching. He was already a prophet. He was already speaking God's Word. And he began to realize, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. We blaspheme every day. We speak filth every day. We lie every day. And I'm as big as any, a liar as it And Isaiah had his experience before a holy God and heard the call of holy God there in those days of national grief. The death of King Uzziah, Jotham comes and takes the throne. What kind of king is Jotham going to be? He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusalem, the daughter of Zadok. Did what, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Verse 35, however, is crucial for a significant reason, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the... Uh, but then it goes on and says, these are some of the things that he did. He built the upper gate of the, of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham, all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Israel, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Ahaz his son reigned in his place. Jotham was a good guy, but not a lot, a lot is said about it. Uh, the one accomplishment that is listed, oh, he built the upper gate in the temple carried on some repairs some renovations and some additions to the external structures to make it to you know basically some of the support areas but it keeps coming back to this and this is the complaint that is lodged against the good kings of Israel ever since the days of Solomon what is this what's the problem who are they worshipping at the high places the lord What's wrong with that? Anybody think about what's wrong with that? Where was the name of God? The temple. What is the temple? Christ. For all intents and purposes, in this generation, in this dispensation, what is the temple? The temple is Jesus Christ. It is... This is what... What it says in Hebrews. Everything in the tabernacle and in the temple is Christ. It's a pattern of the worship that is going on in heaven. It is a pattern of our way to God. It is a pattern of the intercession that we have that gives us access to God. There is no other access but Jesus Christ. There never has been. All of those who came to Christ from Adam. On into our day and beyond. All come through Christ. In some form. In some manner. All come through Christ. There is no other way. There is no other name. And in this generation, in this age, there is no other way. There is no other name. The temple is it. And what are they doing by calling upon the name of the Lord on the high places? This became popular. It was a restoration of the old Uh, Israelite worship back in the days of battle, days of judges, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, when Saul came in, Saul began to try to work to consolidate those things, and yet some of the greatest, the reason that the kingdom was taken away from Saul ultimately is because Saul decided that he had the authority to dictate who worships what, where. He had it, not God. And Saul could offer the sacrifice. He didn't have to wait for Samuel. When David came, David brought the ark back out of its exile in a country house and brought it up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem but the altar was still at another place and so the ark was here the altar was here and yet you had the, the idea the sacrifices are done at the altar but we've got sacrifices of praise and fellowship and thanksgiving we can carry on and because we've got the ark of the covenant here and there was great work there was uh, the beginnings of consolidation and this is why David wanted to build a temple is to bring the worship together God did not give him that commission but he gave that commission to his son Solomon and Solomon fulfilled it and brought the worship together and the temple or the the altar of sacrifice and the ark of the covenant came together once again in one structure for the first time since the great defeat back at Aphek in the days of uh, when the Philistines had their heyday. Yes, it came finally came together and this is what Solomon is praying about in chapter 8 of First Kings. Lord, it's all together. So when we direct our prayers through this altar, in Your name, hear us. So what does Solomon also introduce? He introduces... Now, he marries idolatrous women. And he brings, he lets them, and actually brings, positively brings, and basically shelters their idols in the same territory as the worship of the one true God. You know what that tells the people? Solomon can let these women go and worship at these idols, and he himself will go and worship at those idols. What's going to be the harm in us worshiping the way our grandfathers did up in the high places? Their traditions kicked in. Yeah. Sorry. Can that not be parallel
0: to many of the religions and churches that leave Jesus out of the worship? Well, do you think?
1: Worship only God. Well, do you think? for those who worship I came across I, I came across a, uh, a, a website and blog and Facebook page uh, yesterday and I, I won't tell you the specifics of it, but the whole idea is these are people who want to reincarnate the Bible so that uh we can write a new Bible in which the way that you worship the god or gods or goddesses that have been meaningful to you, you can write into this new reimagined Bible. Now, the whole idea, the fact that it's is that they have to do this to the Bible tells you what? These are people who have a Christian orientation. They consider themselves to be Christians, but they don't consider themselves to be Christians in any orthodox way, and they will tell you, these are the people who will tell you, well, you know, I don't believe in organized religion, I believe in spirituality, I believe that, that, and there are many ways to God, and there are... You know, you have many Christs in the world, and you have many, you know, we have Saint Jesus Christ, Saint Paul, Saint Muhammad, Saint John Paul II. I mean, we've got all of this, you know. So you can reimagine, you can go your own way, you can do your own thing. Here's the deal about the high places and why this is such a serious accusation even of the good kings. This is the great flaw that stayed, that, the, that none of these good kings ever had the gumption to go against the traditions of the people in order to establish the truth that God had revealed. But what's the big deal about it? The big deal about it is this. God there's one God and according to the one law that the one God had given there is one place that you may worship me and that is a place not of your choosing but of mine and that was a standard that was all the way up through and operating even when Jesus sat on the mountain in Sychar in Samaria at the well of Jacob and talked to a woman about theology and said that and she said to him you Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem but we say that this is the mountain the mountain of our fathers is where we're supposed to worship and he first of all he corrected her says you worship out of ignorance. You're welcome. We Jews worship out of knowledge. True story. But the day is coming, and now is, when those who worship God will worship Him in not on this mountain or that mountain, but will worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. That's always been true. But it has not always been true that you could worship God in spirit and in truth just anywhere without any directive. Because the temple is Jesus Christ. In this day and age, why can we worship anywhere at any time? Because Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and He has sent His Holy Spirit. And our bodies have become temples of the holy spirit so wherever the holy spirit is that's where jesus is therefore wherever we are that's where jesus is that's why we can worship not just on this mountain or that mountain but anywhere we you can't transplant the new dispensation and the new covenant into the old the old covenant displays the new but in shadows and forms. And there is a divine necessity for worshiping God in His way. And by the way, there still is that divine necessity. But it's not a matter of outward forms, it's a matter of what's in us responding to who He is. What is in us truly. Responding to who he truly is. Not our imagination about who he is. Not our feelings about who he is. But about who he truly is. And who we truly are. That goes off into a. Something that. Maybe we'll get to later. But as for right now. I've got to get over Ahaz. And Ahaz just makes me. Ahaz is to Judah what Ahab was to Israel. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despical practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. By the way, the irony of all of that is intentional you know those gods that the peoples that the Canaanites used to worship and you know how they used to worship those gods and in their desperate times and when they were getting ready to be overwhelmed they would sacrifice their children and you remember how we came and drove those people out and God totally defeated them before us and their gods and their sacrifices were completely impotent to stop us you know, remember those people? Ahaz picks up the practices of those people and said, this is how we're going to be strong as a nation. Tell you what I'm going to do. I am so desperate, I'm even going to sacrifice one of my children to God, to, to the gods. And the gods will honor that. That's how we'll get power. What's going on with Ahaz? Jotham happened to live in a day. The king, Pekah, the king of Israel, and what's his name, king of Assyria, or king of Syria, uh, set up an alliance. That they were going to have, they were going to, they were going to fight against Assyria. They were going to fight against Tiglath Pileser of Assyria. They, so they have an alliance. They wanted Judah to get in on this. They needed Judah's backup. They needed Judah's backing. Jotham said, "I'm not in. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there." So this began what, became, what becomes known to historians and biblical scholars as the Syro-Ephraimite war against Judah. And they, start, they fight against Judah. They can't fight against Assyria without Judah's support, and so they're going to have to conquer Judah and put their own guy on the throne of Judah. That basically is the, apparently is their idea. Either, either extort support from him or put their own guy on the throne so that someone who's favorable to them well, that doesn't go... But there's a whole lot of struggle in the... Now, Jotham is the king at this time. He's got this son, Ahaz, who's the crown prince. And he sees all of this going on. And he looks at this and he doesn't believe anything about what Isaiah the prophet is saying. About how God's going to God's going to come. God will help us. Don't worry about these people. God has this under control. You trust God. We'll do our part. We'll fight the battle. But God will be with us. Ahaz doesn't believe a word of it. Jotham's having to be supported and and held up by by Isaiah and other prophets. Micah and some of the other prophets. But Ahaz doesn't believe a word of it. And as he comes in, when he comes into power, he says, forget that. We're going all Assyria policy. Tell you what we're going to do. Rezin the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war against on Jerusalem and they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't conquer him. At that time, Rezin the king of Syria recovered Elath for Syria, drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, and said, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of, a, of Syria, the king of Syria, and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And that's what brought Tiglath-Pileser, that gave him the entrance into Israel. And that was the beginning of the downfall of Israel. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria, listened to him, the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. During all of this time, you can read from the prophet's point of view what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah comes and in the name of God begs Ahaz, ask God for a sign. Ask God for a sign. And Ahaz says, "No, I'm not going to, to pursue to ask God for a sign liar he was absolutely determined that he was going to get that he was going to become a vassal state of Assyria that he was going to bring Judah under the rule of the pagan kingdom of Assyria and accept their protection but he would not accept the protection of the Lord God And Isaiah was absolutely emphatic. And finally he said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. The Holy Virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. And by the time he is yea years old, the people who are besieging you and bothering you will be gone. Now, now, now. The king of Assyria will do all this for me. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. So he's got The high priest is now a toady of the king of Israel. And the high priest what's going on? Ahaz goes to Damascus. He goes to meet the great Assyrian king and conqueror Tiglath-Pileser. And they have this wonderful conference. And he comes and, and he goes basically goes and literally kisses his feet. He says I am you know. He bows down before him, kisses his ring, says Godfather. You know. I mean it's he's selling the soul of his nation literally because he goes to Damascus and he sees the altar where the king of Assyria likes to worship, and he, he that the king of Assyria has brought in his religion. Of course, you've got the Assyrian religion. Basically, all of the religions of the, of the Middle East at this point are based upon a very common mythology, a very similar mythology. The bales were all about local applications of this mythology, but it was all, it was all like this. Well, the, these empires, their, their bales grew rather grand and started having these... Uh, visions of, of being conquering gods over all and so their bales just basically were bigger than the other bales is what it amounted to. So he goes and sees this this altar and he likes it. He thinks now that's got class. That's got oh, that, that we need that in Jerusalem. His mind is growing. He is becoming a bigger person. He has seen the world. His, his, his provincial father, Jotham, and he never understood these other, other things. Solomon was the last person who really understood the, the ways of the world. And we're going to go back, and I'm going to go back like my ancestor Solomon and be, be like him and, and bring in these other influences. And you know, our altar is pretty plain. That altar it was fancy, it was decorated, it was classy, it was just, it, just, it was artistic, the design, it was just, we, I like that one, Let's bring, and it's bigger. Let's bring that in. We move ours out, we'll bring that in. Now obviously, he is kowtowing to the king of Assyria, he's wanting to get favor. We're going to see in the next couple of verses, he doesn't stop there. He goes way out of His way to do that. Keep, keep reading. Then the king, uh, verse 12, When the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar, went up on it, burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, poured his drink offering, threw the blood of his peace offerings on the offer, on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the house, from the place, his altar, in the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, On the great altar burn the morning burn offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw on all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And we're going to keep this, you know, this kind of a safety net of you know, just what if, what if there's actually something to this worship of the Lord. You know, we, we, we want to keep our hand in that. And Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. God is going to hold him accountable for all of that. At a time when you could have and should have stood, you bowed down to a corrupt king and violated your anointing and your calling. King Ahaz but why did he do that? I think we're going to see that there is a market for it. There was an appetite for it among the people. This is what the people wanted. Then King Ahaz cut down the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them and took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and on a stone pedestal and covered way the way for the Sabbath that had been inside the house and the outer infants for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. all of this. Now what did he do? He took he's going out of his way to do this. The bronze altar he's put out of the way. The bronze bulls that held the great sea which represented the source of life and the river that goes out and flows out into the world from the twelve tribes carrying this message to the world. Now, get rid of that. We've become like one of the other nations. We are not different from the rest of the nations. We are like the other nations. Finally, the great cry from the days of the judges, give us a king so that we may be like all the other nations. Finally, that cry has been fulfilled and now we really are like other nations. Oh, we still have our local god just like the other nations have. But we also celebrate the other gods as the other nations do. And the gods that are strong, we'll honor them first. The gods of the king of Assyria will honor them first. The gods that might be able to give us strength because if we cry out to them in desperation and offer our children up to them, we'll honor them first. He didn't send the bronze to the king of Assyria. He just got rid of it, probably melted it down, used it for weapons, armor, something else, other implements. didn't have any use for it. didn't have any need for it. The bronze was required. That was was the stipulation. This was the design of the original temple. We don't need it. We need to get away from those old things. We need to to bring in the new. We need to bring in the, the modern. We need to update ourselves. We need to update the gospel. The old gospel doesn't reach people anymore. We need to update the gospel. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that, they, that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. In that whole chapter, there's something missing. Did you notice it? Did you notice what was not there? was one other time that this, the one other king under which this was omitted. Any mention of the promise that God gave to David? Folks, even as I say that, a cold chill runs through my body. Do you understand what that means? There's only one other king that that was mentioned and that was a, that was the the worst king up until this point, Nehaziah. The neglect of the mention of the promise that God gave to David is the suggestion of the author. God's mercy on behalf of God God is going to remain faithful forever, but his mercy to David's descendants on David's behalf, that's starting to run thin. It is a dark foreshadowing of something that is to come. Ahaz is disqualifying himself from the promise that God gave to David that God would have a ruler on his throne. God is long-suffering. giving a warning and it's a dark foreshadowing for us to come is there any hope at all next week we're going to find out
0: you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation thanks for tuning in